Hey friends, Daniel Schreiner here with the Disciple Hinson Podcast. This week, our guest is Liz Moody, and she graciously agreed to come and talk about OCD and religious scrupulosity. Don't know what that is? Well, listen and find out. Don't think you struggle with those things? Well, I'm sure somebody in your life does, so you should listen so you can know how you can extend the hope and the help that Christ gives us. Um, but really, what I found to be one of the most wonderful things about the way Liz speaks about her own struggle is the way she magnifies Christ and the objective work um, that he accomplished on the cross and in the gospel. So I think even if you are someone who struggles more with licentiousness and not legalism, that you will be helped in putting your trust in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So listen, be helped, and encouraged. Liz Moody, welcome to the Disciple Henson Podcast. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to, to this. We've been talking about recording this for some time, and you're finally here. Here I am. Um, Liz, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I would assume most of the Henson family would know you, but uh, there will be some who don't know who you are. So where are you from? How'd you come to faith? Just a little bit about yourself. Yes, I am Liz Moody. I grew up in West Virginia. And I was born into a loving Christian home. I spent most of my growing up years in an, a very conservative, fundamental Baptist church. And I came to faith as a child. I remember talking with my mom about Jesus dying on the cross, and she led me through the sinner's prayer. So I really spent my life in church, which has been a huge blessing. Um, I'm married to my husband, Stephen. We'll be married 15 years this summer. After the first few years of marriage, we packed up jobless and homeless, and we moved to Arizona to help with the church plant down there. And after seven years in the desert, we were looking to move somewhere green. So my husband had a chance to transfer up here to Portland, and one of the main factors in bringing us here was Hinson. We were able to visit Hinson before we came, and we're really looking for a church that was Christ-centered where the gospel was seen as for all of life, not just for salvation. And so it's been almost five years that we've been up here, and it's a really great church and community to raise our four kids in. We have four children, ages 10, 8, 5, and 1. Excellent. Um, so just out of curiosity, you, you mentioned that you grew up in kind of a conservative fundamentalist church in West Virginia. Was that the same kind of church that you guys then went to in Arizona for those seven years? Was it similar to that? The Arizona church was still in the fundamentalist circles. Okay. It was a healthier church than the one that I had grown up in. Um, but coming to Hinson was our first time to be part of a church that was not fundamental. Okay. That was going to be my ne next question. Is Hinson a conservative fundamentalist church? It is conservative, but it is definitely not fundamental. Okay, so there's been a progression. Um, and uh, so Hinson, in some ways, is a new kind of church for you. Very much so. Okay, and would that be the same for Stephen as well? Yes. Okay. He grew up in a fundamentalist church as well. Just out of curiosity, too, how did you and Stephen meet? Well, we met at a Christian college in South Carolina, but we were introduced by his computer teacher, who then became my youth pastor. Oh, interesting. Who told us about one another, and I asked Stephen out first, and now we're married. Excellent. 
Uh, Liz, one of the things that I've been looking forward to talking to you about is, um, and you've graciously uh, shared about this with others, and I know have helped, I was just hearing um, someone share how you helped them, uh, is this issue of religious scrupulosity. It's kind of a mouthful, or OCD. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that uh, part of your story and even what that is? Yes. Um, I didn't understand that this was OCD or scrupulosity until recently. But I do remember looking back that I began my battle with anxiety really at age 12. Hmm. And it was a marked time in my life where the anxiety just ratcheted up. And I I quickly realized that when preachers would speak about anxiety or worry or fear, what I was experiencing was different. It wasn't what they were talking about in their sermons. So that felt very isolating to me. I felt like I was having a unique experience of fear. Nothing seemed to be helping with it. And I really began to struggle with assurance of my salvation. I actually have followed the Lord in believers' baptism three times because I felt like each time that I would get some assurance of salvation, I needed to be rebaptized. Um, I became very fearful of inadvertently making a vow to God that I didn't want to make or I shouldn't make. And so I would develop this ritual of saying the word not over and over to myself. Or when I couldn't say not because that was too embarrassing in front of people, I would use my hand to sign the word not in sign language. And I felt like that was keeping me safe before God. Can you give a little more context? What do you mean you were saying the word not? Like in what kind of context were you doing that? Like if I were in my room and I at home and I was fearful that I was about to make a decision before God that in, that seemed like a a vow for my life, then I would say over and over to myself, either mentally or out loud, not, 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 as a way to protect myself from misstepping before God. Uh, this is this is really helpful. Um, and I also, a number of people who, who listen to the podcast maybe are, have opportunities to teach or, or preach. And uh, even I myself, I know, have been guilty in praying. You know, you take the words of Jesus, like, do not be anxious about anything, you know, and it's, and it's like almost like, you know, the way that Christ often talks about it, it's a sin to be repented of. And yet, for you, as a young believer, uh, you know, even from an early age, you would hear that, and that would be crushing to you, because you, you said you were experiencing something a maybe a little different than what Jesus is talking about there. Right. Even my feeling of fear hmm. was seen to be a sin from Scripture. Hmm. And so it seemed like there was no way out of the fearful cycle. That Yeah, that's super, super helpful. Anything, uh, you don't have to have anything, but anything that you would say to teachers of God's Word or just even other brothers and sisters in Christ who are taking you know, just kind of flatly the words about anxiety and scripture and then applying it to um, folks who are having struggles like you're describing or just struggling with uh, heightened anxiety or uh, assurance of salvation, um, ways that that can be crushing to the consciences of of people. And anything that you would say to, to folks? I think that being aware that there are congregants who have a hardened conscience and congregants who have 
a sensitive conscience and in my case an overly sensitive mm-hmm. conscience and so i feel like most of the sermons i heard were targeting those with a hardened conscience and um that can be helpful but only for part of your congregation so then also to have a gentle word of encouragement for those who are incorrectly condemning themselves mm-hmm. and not hearing Christ's words of comfort, it can come across as though scripture is another tool that is making my fear even harder to escape because now my fear itself is a sin as well as the sin I was afraid I was going to commit. Wow. It's like a downward spiral. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked uh, a little bit about the heightened anxiety and um, struggles with assurance of salvation. Really appreciate you you sharing about that. And that you said you started kind of experiencing that even as a child. Right. Um, but it wasn't, you said it was not until later that you started being able to kind of label some of the, the struggles that you were experiencing as religious scrupulosity and OCD. So I think it'd be helpful just not in a scientific way, but just to kind of define what you mean by first OCD and then religious scrupulosity. Sure. It's as though OCD is the larger umbrella Mm -hmm. and religious scrupulosity is a subtype of OCD. So OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder, and it's a really great name. It's very descriptive as to what the cycle looks like. A person can become obsessed with a particular fear. There's all flavors of fears. Um, It could be like an intrusive thought that they're considering that is very fearful. It could be contamination or, you know, even in this pandemic, it's easy to think, oh, have I gotten sick? And in order to assuage that fear or to keep themselves safe, they turn to a compulsion, which is like a ritual. It could be something mental like counting or praying, or it could be something physical like cleaning or organizing a bookshelf in a certain way. But the person is doing that ritual not just because they like cleaning, but because it feels like that's the only thing that will keep them safe from their fear or keep their loved ones safe. So it's really torturous because the ritual then feeds back into the obsession. The ritual only brings relief for a certain time period, and then the fear um, comes back. It's kind of like a mosquito bite. You scratch it, mm-hmm. it feels good, and then after a while, it just itches even more because you scratched it. So it's hard to break that obsessive-compulsive cycle. And then religious scrupulosity, like I said, is a subtype of that where it's related to a person's specific religious beliefs, or if they're not religious, they're moral consciousness and it's the fear of not being safe before god of committing a sin and the only way that they can keep themselves from committing a sin is to turn to this ritualized praying or asking for reassurance from pastors or other believers or apologizing unnecessarily um so that type of OCD looks like a spiritual issue, but in fact, it's a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. That's a really good description. I, I have so many questions uh, to follow up. Let's see if I can remember them. Um, often, well, first, I guess, is would you say that OCD is a spectrum where, uh, because sometimes you know, maybe unhelpfully so, I'll say I have OCD about like keeping my desk clean 
or, uh, or, or cleaning up. Um, is that a form of OCD? I would say no. Mm -hmm. I think OCD is misunderstood and mm -hmm. it's really easy for it to become the brunt of many jokes. Mm -hmm. I've even used that language myself. I'm OCD about something mm -hmm. when I don't really mean OCD. It's not a term to describe someone who is detail oriented mm -hmm. or someone who enjoys being organized or mm -hmm. enjoys cleaning their house. People who are performing those compulsions, those rituals, are not doing it as a hobby because they like it. They're mm. doing it because that is the only thing that they incorrectly believe will keep them safe. Uh, whatever their fear is, this is a way to assuage it. And that can become life-dominating. Mm -hmm. So probably most people in their life may experience an obsessive-compulsive cycle at some point. But for there to be a diagnosis, it becomes, uh, it masters the person and interrupts their regular routine. It brings marked distress. So I would encourage myself and others not to turn to OCD as a way to joke about someone mm -hmm. who is cleaning or very detail-oriented. Or even talk about yourself kind of lightly because that could be uh, hurtful to those who are actually experiencing deep fear that's manifesting itself in, in OCD, would you say? Yes, it's, yeah. it's suffering that you don't want to make fun of. That, there you go. Yeah, and I think the same would be about talking about bipolar or schizophrenic, you know, just being being aware that there's brothers and sisters, friends, family who are who are suffering. Exactly. And when you talk about it lightly, it's, it's unhelpful, um, to say the least. Okay, so let's, let's then... Um, talk about more of the moral scrupulosity part of it. Um, you know, scripture tells us to pray without ceasing, and yet it sounds like part of your your ritual was to pray, and you would say in an unhelpful way because it was driven by fear. That's right. I didn't mention, but later in life, I really came to the crisis that would bring me to understand this as OCD. And that was after the birth of my second child. I was already experiencing postpartum hormones, sleep mm -hmm. deprivation. And um, within that, we faced a crisis in our marriage that just sent me into a tailspin of anxiety. And I again was struggling with the assurance of my salvation. I thought that I needed to have perfect faith in Christ. I needed to have perfect repentance. I needed to pray the perfect words in order to apprehend salvation. And so I did turn to prayer as my compulsion. I would pray hundreds of times. And each time I felt a little bit better afterwards and that wouldn't last. Then I would need to pray again. And I eventually charted out my day and divided it into 30-minute segments. And if I could go 30 minutes without praying the sinner's prayer, I would give myself a check mark on my chart. And I didn't get very many check marks. Mm. Um, it was a time when I lost 30 pounds without trying. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I would have these adrenaline surges through my arms that were incredibly painful because I was constantly in a state of panic. So my praying may have looked good. It's always good to pray, you think, 
but it actually was keeping me trapped. Instead, I need to look at Christ. And it's not my faith that saves me. My faith will always be imperfect. My repentance will always be marked by sin. But because Christ is perfect, he is the object of my faith and repentance. Therefore, my hope is in a person. It is not in my prayer. Um, thank you so much for sharing that, Liz. Uh, the, so what you're describing is in your, in your prayer life during that, that season of suffering, that wasn't sweet communion with Jesus. Uh, in no way, shape, or form. It, yes, to say the, to say the least. Um, so, any any thoughts on um, then what it looked like not to be uh, praying in fear? Uh, it sounds like a, a form of legalism with the with the check marks and and such. Yes, it actually became a works righteousness. Mm-hmm. It had a form of godliness, but it didn't bring about the spirit working in my heart. I was trying to walk in the spirit via my flesh. I was mm-hmm. trying to do it all on my own. Mm-hmm. And and what was the process from turning from that misery and that suffering and that kind of that that cycle that you found yourself trapped in and and what was it that you saw when you began to see the light so to speak start to see the beauty of Christ and to delight in him I'm sure it didn't happen overnight. No, this was a several years long process. Um In fact, it began with a podcast that my husband found on his daily commute to work. He was listening to This American Life about religious scrupulosity. And the interviewer was talking with a Catholic priest who had listened to confessions by people who were scrupulous. And in that description, Stephen saw my struggle. And it was through that we began to understand that what I was facing was not merely a spiritual battle, but it was also a mental health crisis. And mental health was not a well-developed category in the circles that we had come from. So it would never have occurred to me that this was something more going on. But it brought such relief to know that I was no longer isolated. Other people had this experience. I was not unique. There was a name for it. Hmm. There was management and therapy. There was hope for the first time that somehow I didn't have to live this way. And so that sent Stephen on a path to find resources to help me. Hmm. And um, really, we came across the Uh, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, Mm. where they study um, mental illness through the lens of both biology and our spiritual relationship with God. Mm. And it really was Mike Emlett's little mini booklet on OCD that began to give me um, gospel categories to think about for the spiritual side and also um, the freedom to see this as something biological as well, where I could seek therapy, I could seek help. It wasn't merely just me and God. And uh, and you just recently, you said, uh, listened to that podcast actually for the first time just a few weeks ago. That's right. Yeah. And what was your, what was your reflection uh, after, how many years ago was it that Stephen found that? Do you remember? It was um, when you were in Arizona? Probably eight years ago. Okay. It wasn't as scary to listen to it as I have been thinking it would be this whole time. Mm -hmm. Um, It was helpful to hear what was described. Um, I'm thankful that Stephen saw me in that Mm. and that that sparked the 
turn the light on for mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. So, so that process began a number of years ago. Um, you, you, you guys moved up here to Portland and found yourself at Henson. Have you been able to speak with others in person, it sounds like you know the Lord really used the secular podcast and then the ministry of CCEF and these resources. Did you get a chance to talk to people, whether believers or, or therapists or things that were helpful for you? Yes, I think Hinson has been a very safe place to talk about mental illness, mm-hmm. which is very new mm-hmm. for me and for Stephen. It's been a place where I felt there are resources, and I finally worked up the courage to be um, diagnosed. I was diagnosed back in 2018. I was too scared before that to go see anyone, and that was really helpful. I was I did therapy for a year, and the therapy was uh, helpful to find out what OCD thinking looks like, and now I can better identify when it's scrupulosity condemning me. Mm-hmm. But yet at Henson, I can also learn better the true character of God and see this whole storyline of scripture so that those verses that used to be so scary for me, I can see in context of who God is throughout redemptive history. It's not pulling those out and using those as a bludgeon. And I have come across several brothers and sisters who struggle in similar ways. Mm. And that is encouraging, again, that we can link arms together. I'm still managing this. Maybe I can help them. Maybe they can help me. Um, But we can all walk together and run to Jesus. Amen. That's beautiful. Um, A number of years ago, and this is kind of what put the seed in my mind to have this conversation with you because I know you're you, it sounds like you're sharing uh, your story in this regard with with others in in order to be a help but you and Stephen came and spoke to the elders um was that how many years ago do you remember mm, maybe four so it was it was prior to your official diagnosis that's right um do you remember what what led you <laughs> to kind of have the courage to come and speak to to your elders a group of guys um about this you know this experience that's uh deeply personal and uh and uh, the suffering in your life what what led you to to do that i think for the first time seeing pastors and elders who would hear us both as children of god and as physical people that may have um, a mental illness just to know that that was a category, that we weren't going to be rejected or thought that we were believing secular lies in order to excuse a sin struggle that we had. So to know that we were safe and that you cared for us as embodied souls, we were both Mm -hmm. physical and spiritual. Mm -hmm. Well, I just, even though it was a number, you know, four years ago or so, I just remember how uh, struck I was by your story and you and Stephen coming and being willing to share, it really strengthened my faith. 
and encouraged me to, and I just like, man, if we could, if we could have a, a body of believers who are willing to share openly their struggles and also help us, because I think we need help um, in understanding uh, the, the various struggles and suffering that our members are going through. So thank you for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. I'm sure that wasn't uh, something that you like look forward or were excited about doing. Um, so yeah, thank you once again. Um, all right. Well, we've kind of gotten off script here a little bit. Sorry about that. But uh, any anything else that has, has helped you and how do you feel like um, you're doing now, Liz, uh, now kind of after being... Uh, officially diagnosed, walking in fellowship with one with others in the church, helping others who are struggling with similar things. Um, any words of encouragement? Um, okay, I'm asking a lot of questions. How are you doing now? This is still something that I manage day mm-hmm. to day. Mm-hmm. I have good days and I have bad days. I have strong days and I have very fragile days. But Thankfully, I do have strategies now that I've gained through therapy, and I have the ordinary means of grace. Mm -hmm. And so I'm encouraged that as a Christian, I feel like I have a two-pronged attack against this OCD that helps me manage it. I need to get enough rest. I need to eat well. Mm -hmm. It's helpful to go outside a little bit every day. Um exposing myself to fearful situations and not responding with a compulsive ritual is something that my therapist has helped me work through. But yet I also have Jesus. I have a person outside of myself that I can cast myself onto in my moments of deepest fear. And sometimes I'm not strong enough to do that, but that's where the body comes in. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that just texting a friend, hey, I'm having a bad day, just brings some light into the situation for Mm -hmm. someone else to know that and they can be praying for me. Um, And just admitting that to someone else sometimes helps me break out of that obsessive cycle. Sometimes I can't. I can't turn my brain off. Mm -hmm. That obsession is still there. And that's where I find if I can just do the next right thing without compulsing, without obsessing, um, that's the obsession will still be there, but I can wash the dishes right now. I can sweep the floor right now. And that gives me a practical way to move forward instead of remaining in the paralysis of hmm. a scrupulous cycle. So just for, for clarification, you're saying that you know, walking, moving forward um, is is sometimes, yeah, doing what is right um, or doing the next thing. That right. That's not a form of the, the moral scrupulosity or the OCD to, to necessarily turn and do the dishes or read with your kids or, you know, something like that. that no, you find that helpful. That is helpful because that is not my ritual to keep myself safe if I wanted to... Um, continue in the OCD cycle, Mm -hmm. I might do more research online to figure out Mm -hmm. a doctrinal point, or I might run to my husband and ask for reassurance, Mm -hmm. or I might pray compulsively. But if I can do the task that God has set in front of me that day, while my brain is spiraling, then I am rejecting scrupulosity and I am 
walking in the spirit, even though everything is screaming at me to say, you need to do the ritual to keep Mm. yourself safe. I am trusting that I am safe in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's more than a cognitive battle. It's a battle of trust. Mm -hmm. Will I trust my brain that what I need to do to keep myself safe is all within me? Or will I trust God that I am safe with him because of Jesus? Mm, I love that distinction. Uh, Can you also provide another distinction for us? Um, What is, can you contrast kind of the, the ritual prayer to the Lord to um, when you're when you're resting in the objective work of Christ because I would imagine that there would be there would be prayer involved there as well so same activity but two very different things and what what would characterize those differences I know that's kind of a difficult question but any thoughts well I, I don't always get this right because what I'm having to do is discern between, scrupulosity and Mm. following the spirit Mm. and that takes practice sometimes they Mm -hmm. look the same to me okay Uh so sometimes i'm guessing especially in the beginning i'm guessing but um as i'm praying in a scrupulous manner it is more that i am concerned to get the perfect words and so i will often pray the same thing over and over again or i'll go back and tweak it again Mm -hmm. um where it feels like my heart is gripped with fear and I'm saying these words to try to get that fear off of my back. But a prayer resting in Jesus can just be something simple as, help me, mm-hmm. help me, Lord, mm-hmm. I, I, can't, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I entrust this to you. I can't turn off this obsession. Could you just hold me? Could you mm-hmm. just help me through mm-hmm. this right now? Mm-hmm. And it's less about getting the words right. So I've learned to to feel the difference better, but that's something really hard for a yeah. scrupulous person to discern. Yeah, yeah. And even maybe someone who doesn't um, struggle with this specifically can relate to that, um, to the prayer that is essentially you're resting in your own religious activity, like you're you're putting your faith in the fact that, oh, I had, I've had a quiet time every day this week, and, the, and your confidence becomes in your own performance rather than in the work of Christ. I know that's you're not just describing that, but there isn't, wouldn't you say that there is some analogy there? I think so. Okay. Yes. Um, feeling that we have to do something mm-hmm. to stay in favor with God um, is wrong. We are already blessed sons and daughters of God because of Jesus. And Jesus' perfection doesn't wax and wane. It stays constant. So we don't have to read our Bible every day in order for God to love us. He loves us as much as he can. Mm -hmm. But I find that now I want to read my Bible every day because I love God. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's great. I remember David Fisher telling the youth that in a very strong way that, you know, we're always trying to hammer into the kids, right? You know, you should you know, have spiritual disciplines, read the word, pray. And he came, and I think from a different angle, it's like, that's actually not what saves you or makes you a believer is these activities. Um, and I found that helpful. And I, I thought you gave expression to that beautifully. Um, okay, so just uh, a couple final questions for you. Um, we've kind of touched on these, uh, which is basically um, what has helped you? Wh- how can people, 
people in the body of Christ help one another put their trust in the objective work of Christ and not in their own performance, and particularly when they're struggling, um, they're suffering under fear the, the, in, the, in the ways that you've described. So how can we help those? Um, and, uh, and then just, I guess, finally, so just the final question would be anything else that you would like to share with with the church family and those who listen. Um, I know we intended to talk about a number of different things that we didn't necessarily get to, but maybe first we can talk about um, how we can help one another. Sure. I think realizing that this is a real struggle that is in Christian circles and even non-Christian circles Mm -hmm. is helpful. And so approaching someone with compassion and being willing to walk alongside them for the long haul. It takes a lot of patience to walk with someone struggling in this way. And I think if someone shares with you that they have this level of anxiety, you should count that as a huge privilege because it's incredibly scary to admit this to someone. And they themselves might be confused as to what the struggle is. I was. Mm And so knowing that it can happen and knowing that there's hope and that they're not alone um, is a place to start. I think, again, for pastors and teachers to know that um, wisdom issues should not be taught as absolute moral right and wrong, um, because that can also feed into scrupulosity, where I, I can't make a decision about anything in my life because anything could be a misstep or a sin. Um, and that's not actually the case, but it feels that way um, if there's no room for wisdom or discernment. I think, too, that if you're close to a person struggling in a scrupulous way, um, this takes wisdom, but often the right thing to do is to not offer them the reassurance that they're seeking or to not receive an unnecessary apology from them. And that seems counterintuitive, but what you're doing by giving that reassurance or receiving that apology is you're feeding their compulsion. If they're compulsively asking you for reassurance of, was this a sin? What do you think about this? Or they're apologizing for things that they did that really aren't sins. You're helping feed that compulsion. Instead, my husband has to do this with me. He'll say, I'm not going to answer that question for you. And helping that person run to Jesus and find their hope in Christ to know if that was a sin, that's covered under the cross. That's completely paid for. So I don't have to apologize for this to make myself feel better. And oftentimes the sins that I'm struggling with are not really sins at all. They're more imagined sins. Um, And then I I would say to someone who maybe sees themselves in this, Um, description to know that you aren't alone, that Mm. there is hope, that there are people willing to walk with you. And I would encourage them to find one trusted friend Mm. and start the conversation Mm. Um, because bringing it out into the light can make a huge difference. That's wonderful. And you kind of answered my my question uh, or a couple of the questions I had, which is, you know, how has has Stephen or friends... um, helped you particularly in those really dark times of suffering and paralysis like what what because sometimes when a friend or a spouse or a child is really in the darkness and really paralyzed by fear 
that can, because of your love for that friend or whatever, you, you become paralyzed yourself. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to help. You feel helpless. Um, any other uh, thoughts of, of times that, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Stephen wasn't able to do this perfectly. He's um, human like the rest of us, but w- things that were helpful that he did or a, a, a close friend. Yes, I think that um, it's important to walk in community with other trusted believers. And I did want to touch on the fact that what has happened with a person's conscience in scrupulosity, it's as though scrupulosity is hijacked their conscience, and the alarm bells are constantly going off. So it's really no longer a trustworthy guide. And so I have to depend on the consciences of others around me. Mm. That's where being part of a gospel-centered church is so important. I often sometimes don't have the faith to keep following Jesus, and I let my brothers and sisters carry me until my feet become firmly planted again, or I can't make a decision in life. I'm too paralyzed, and I listen to the conscience of my husband, or I see what other trusted believers have done in that situation. And in order to realign or recalibrate my conscience and follow my God-given conscience, Mm -hmm. not my scrupulous conscience, I have to do that in community and do that guided by the truth of scripture. What does scripture actually say? Not what do I think it's saying pulled out of context. So you would say that, uh, that a morally scrupulous person should not always follow their conscience. Exactly. They should not follow their conscience because their conscience is not functioning properly. The scrupulosity has Mm -hmm. taken control of it Mm -hmm. And so to give into that just feeds the OCD cycle. So again, that's where that discernment of what am I listening to right now? Is it mm-hmm. scrupulosity or is it my spirit, God-given conscience? And and walking in community would be maybe the key way that and, and listening to the consciences of brothers and sisters in Christ was the key way that the Lord helped you bring your conscience in particular in your story more in line with scripture? That's right. Okay. And therapy has helped as well. My therapist has told me to think, what would a person without OCD do in this situation? That's a good question. And that can be very helpful Mm. um, as I'm trying to answer questions on a form perfectly. Mm. I often have to say, okay, how would someone else answer this? Okay, good. Uh, Liz, anything else that you would like to to share? This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really hope that this can be the start of a conversation and Mm -hmm. um, helpful to someone who maybe is struggling in this way because the Lord has brought great freedom. Um, I still manage it, like I mentioned, but I'm really thankful that we can talk about these things and we can all run to Christ together. Amen. And I trust that your example even here today will will help us to that end walk side by side in love and understanding. So thank you again. Thank you.